Well, well, well. We're back in the saddle again, everybody. Boys, how are you? Welcome back. I want you both to write out in 200 words or less member in school. What did you do in your summer holidays? Actually, I don't care about that. <laughs> how are you, Kevin? Oh, we're doing all right, Jimmy. And yes, isn't it wonderful to be back? Another curling season happening and it's looking pretty normal. So fantastic. Yeah. When Warren hears we took the summer off, he goes, I didn't. You guys might have, but Warren, you did a bunch. How are you doing, Warren? You're ready for another big season of curling? I am, Jim. And here on the West Coast, we are now into, I say we have two seasons in uh, Vancouver. It's uh, summer and winter, and we're now into winter after a very hot summer. So I'm all set to go. Well, you know what? I don't want to hear about your summers anymore, uh, Warren. I want to talk about curling, and we're going to do it right now. Last rock, eighth end, up by two. I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. it's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Don't kill it. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Line's good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last here. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Well, here we go, folks. We're back for another season of Inside Curling. This is exciting. Uh, also, we've got some new sponsors, uh, Sports Interaction, Coyote Tractor, Nestle Boost, and Goldline Curling. Uh, thank you very much to all those guys for jumping on board. What's happening around the curling world? We're going to talk about that. The Women's 43rd Annual Autumn Gold Classic took place. The Stew Sells Tankard in Toronto, and also in Swift Current, the Western Showdown. So we're going to find out all about that. And veteran curler Jim Ursel passed away on September 29th, and Warren's going to tell us all about that. I remember that name for sure. Our hot topic, okay, the Olympic trials. I don't know if we're ever going to be able to figure this out. It seems to be very complicated, but it's coming up, so we're going to talk a bunch about that. Also, our mailbag. Our Facebook group is still very lively. No thanks to me and Kevin, but thanks to Warren for staying up 24 hours a day and answering all that stuff. Uh, so we're going to go to our Facebook group and take an email out of that. In the house, Graham Prouse, that rhymes, boys. Uh, he's the vice president of the World Curling Federation representing the Americas. We're going to bring him on and talk all about it. So much coming up on the show. Thanks, everyone, for being here. What's happening around the curling world? Uh, that's what this show is all about. Brought to you by Sports Interaction, providing competitive odds on all sports. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds maker. Warren, you're old enough for this. You got to be over 19, okay? And you got to be responsible. So that leaves me just. Out. Yeah. <laughs> Kev, you got a number of events and lots to talk about. Uh, what do you got for us? Yeah, an annual huge event. It's the 43rd annual Autumn Gold that's played in Calgary. It's a women's event and pretty interesting this year. Um, 32 teams, eight teams from outside of Canada, 24 Canadian teams, which makes sense. So I'm just going to walk through this a little bit, you guys. Out of the A side, we had Eve Meerhead and Satsuki Fujisawa coming out of A. Out of B, Unchi Jim out of South Korea and Chelsea Carey 
out of BNN, Jennifer Jones, Tabitha Peterson, Tracy Fleury, and Jamie Sinclair out of C. That's five out of eight qualifiers from outside of Canada, only three from eight from inside. So in the final, we had Tabitha Peterson, of course, out of the U.S., and who we've talked about as being an absolutely fantastic player, uh, beating uh, Satsuki Fujisawa 6-5 to five in the final, but she was one up going home with hammer so really good control there but i think this is and warren will probably want to jump in on this but i think this is kind of uh showing us women's curling as a whole right now we do have great canadian uh teams but boy oh boy i think the depth of curling is from outside the canadian borders and that's certainly clear here uh in the semifinals. uh only one canadian team and that was uh, chelsea carey so uh three out of four we're from outside of Canada. Warren, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but I just see this as being something that's been happening over the last few years, and it's just becoming more and more clear and apparent all the time. The strength of curling is outside the Canadian borders in women's curling. Well, I think a couple of other interesting things. Chelsea Carey ends up in the Final Four, but I think what is interesting about that team is they're not even going to be in the Olympic pre-trials, never mind the trials, uh, because of a team change. And so the team of from Canada that does the best is not even going to be in the trials. I think the other interesting thing to note is the U.S. side represented here. Two teams from the United States in the Final Four, Jamie Sinkler and Tabitha Peterson. And I look at both those teams, having worked in the U.S. for a number of years coming into 2020, they both have a really good shot. I think Peterson showed last year, certainly in the women's worlds, of, of her strength. And I think both those teams can be watched going forward to see which one is probably going to come through and represent the USA at the Olympics and then what they do from there. Warren, one of the big events is uh, Swift Current, the Western Showdown. Yeah, there was a big event there this weekend as well. This was primarily Canadian teams that were participating, but it was most of the top teams were there. In the end, eight teams that qualified, you'd recognize most of them, Brad Jacobs, Matt Dunstan, Carson Sturme, Colton Flash, Tyler Tardy, Pat Simmons, Kevin Cooey, and Cody Harding. In the end, the final four were Simmons, Cooey, Jacobs, and Flash. Kind of a disappointing final to some degree because uh, those two semifinal games were very close, very tight. But uh, Cooey ended up dumping Jacobs by a score of 8-1, to one, and so he comes out as the victor in probably one of the first major spiels of the year. What did you think of that one, Kevin? You know what? It's it's kind of a, amazing watching these uh, the teams battle it out before an Olympic trials. It's a bit of cat and mouse, I think, with what teams are doing, who's coming out playing a lot early, who have taken their time and not playing as much. Those teams won't be quite as sharp yet, but it's all sort of a plan as to who needs and how they're going to try to peak at the right time. So I, I've been very interested in watching these various events not so much as who's winning or losing, but how each team have taken on the Olympic cycle. Uh, Warren, one of the things you've talked about extensively on all our shows is the broadcasting of curling is going to change and they've got to make it quicker. They've got to get rid of a bunch of commercials. And there was an event in Toronto, the Stu Cells, that we want to talk about that that's, uh, started using a streaming service. Well, a lot of these games are being streamed, but... Uh group that we're associated with, Curling.com, this weekend did, I think, a pretty good job of what they brought forth out of uh, Toronto and the Stu Cells events. And I think this going forward, they're going to be doing the event in Penticton this coming weekend. And uh, I think this is going to be something that's going to be taking off to a very large degree. And I believe these guys are going to be the key driver behind it. Yeah, the uh, the coverage, I think, has been fantastic. John Cullen is actually doing... uh 
doing most of the work there. Uh, Mary Chilvers, of course, she's uh, one of the two girls in a game podcast, and uh, she worked with John for a lot of the stew cells this week. Actually, Mike Harris, of course, my uh, partner with Sportsnet, um, came in and did the last couple of games. So one thing that curling.com has been doing is making sure that they have had a fantastic uh, announcing. Um, I went out, uh, did some games at an earlier event for curling.com, and uh, Melissa Sligel actually uh, will be working with John Collin uh, in Penticton next week. So they've really worried about making sure the uh, not just the sound and, and, and the video being proper, but also the top caliber uh, commentaries. That's really important. So let's get into this do cells a little bit. A real shock, Jimmy. Uh, Team Brad Gushu ended up getting in the final and uh, won easily against Glenn Howard, actually. Six to one, but... So everybody knows it was actually three to one coming home. Glenn had the hammer uh, down three one, but it gave up a steal of three. So it actually was a fairly close final. That was uh, 18 teams in the men's side, 16 teams on the women's side. And a name that has become, this is somebody I want to talk about a little bit. That's Holly Duncan. She beat Shannon J eight to two in the final. She had a big steal of four in the fifth end to kind of break that game open. But if you recall, Holly Duncan's team, they won the uh, Stu Sells Oakville, uh, beating uh, Team Galusha 7-3 in the final. Then she ended up losing the next week in the final to Galusha, but made another final and then wins this one. So three events in a row. This is this is a team that uh, we need to really watch uh, coming up the ladder because uh, they're doing a lot of winning kind of behind the scenes. Uh, not you know, And, of course, Galusha has had a really good start too because uh, she won the KW event against Duncan but it lost the final um, in Oakville. So those are a couple of the two women's teams that are really, really playing well right now. Uh, there were only a couple of international teams at the Stussel Women's. That was Unjun Kim, I'd mentioned that. And uh, Irene Shorey out of Switzerland. That's a team that Mike Harris has actually worked with. So interesting stuff going on. I do want to mention and a thank you to Stu Sells. Stu is fantastic. Uh, his company, I think it's 10 or 12 events now that he runs between women's, men's, and juniors. It's, it's, it's an amazing amount of work that Stu does for our wonderful sport. I remember the name Jim Ursel. I've been around that long. He was a curling uh, legend. He passed away September 29th. Uh, Warren, tell us all about Jim. Yeah, Jim was a great guy, and he goes back into my era. And one of the things I will always remember about Jim is uh, when we won the Briar way back in 1974, we played Jim in the final game, and it was one of the lowest scoring games in Briar history for many, many years. So I knew Jim well. He was born in Galena, Manitoba on January 27, 22, 1937, and started curling when he was 11 years old. The family moved to Winnipeg when Jim was 15, and he became a member of the Strathcona Curling Club. He was a Manitoba schoolboy champion in 1954. He played third for Manitoba's Norm Hulk in the 1962 Briar and Kitchener, and that was an interesting Briar because after the round robin, there was a three-way tie between Ernie Richardson, Hector Gervais, and of course, Norm Hook from Manitoba. Manitoba lost the first round to Gervais, and of course, Richardson went on to win that briar and the Worlds that year. But Jim, shortly after, uh, Jim worked for Air Canada, and he was transferred to the head office in Montreal. Between 1974 and 1980, he skipped the Quebec team in the briar for six out of seven years. The one exception being 1978. In 77, the briar was held in Montreal for the first time, and for the first time, Quebec and Jim won the Briar that year, and that was a great year for Quebec and for Jim Ursel. He won the silver medal in the Silver Broom that year. 
He was also named Briar All-Star Skip in 1974 and again in 1977, and he won the Ross Hartstone Sportsmanship Award in 1977. He returned to Winnipeg in the 80s and won the Canadian Senior Men's Championship in 1990 and 91. He also became a coach of renown, and he coached his two sons, Bob and Mike, to the Canadian Juniors in 1984 and the world title in 85. When it was held in Perth, Scotland, he was a member and is a member of the Manitoba Curling Hall of Fame, Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame, and the Canadian Curling Hall of Fame, and a member of the Governor General's Curling Club. He's survived by his wife, Carol, and their three children. And, of course, the two boys from their curling prowess, everyone knows who they are. Sorry to see Jim. It's no longer with us. Kevin, I think you, you've said once or twice before that uh, all the great curling that is going on these days when you started, you got you got to thank the people that came before you. Well, of course. That's, uh, yes, that's the way uh, all sports evolve and work, and, and you need the heroes from the past to uh, be able to have the heroes of the present and, of course, the heroes of the future. So, uh, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I never got a chance to curl against Jim, but uh, I certainly have seen him throw a few rocks in the black and white uh, coverage of the past and a great player and, of course, really good friends with his uh, son, Bob. Bob and I uh, know each other very well. So, yes, all the best to the family and sorry to hear about Jim. Warren, I love this topic coming up about the Olympic trials. I know you'll have something to say about it. It's brought to you by Coyote Tractor, proud partner of Team Brad Jacobs and the Grand Slam of Curling. Coyote, we dig dirt. I don't even need to give a preamble on this, Warren. It's all about the Olympic trials, and man, it's changing, and it's changing rapidly. Well, it's to some degree confusing, I believe, because in a normal year, Canada would have qualified seven teams for the Olympic trials based on the team's three-year performance. And an additional 14 teams, men and women, would have been determined for the pre-trials. It would qualify two more teams for each gender. However, because of COVID, the three-year performance records for many teams could not be determined. However, Curling Canada was able to identify four women's teams and five men's teams with records good enough to put them directly into the trials. So the four women's teams that were put directly into the trials were Holman, Einerson, Fleury, and Jones. And on the men's side, the five teams were Botcher, Jacobs, Gushu, Epping, and Cooey. However, this meant on the women's side, three more teams needed to be determined, and on the men's side, two more. So to do this, Curling Canada had a playoff in Ottawa in September that uh, five teams had the right to playoff for the other two spots, which included in the women's side, Schneejigger, Walker, Rock, Brown, and Britt. And on the men's side, the five teams were Flash, Gunnelson, Howard, McEwen, and Dunstone. When this concluded, on the women's side, Walker, Schneidegger, and Rock were the ones that advanced, and on the men's side, McEwen and Dunstan moved to the trials. So we now had the eight teams, or probably the seven teams of the nine. The losers in each case would drop to the pre-trials. Curling has also faced a number of unsolvable situations with regard to the number of teams for the pre-trials. So they had a pre-pre-trials event in Ottawa again in September where they had seven men's and seven women's teams, and two from each gender would go directly to the pre-trials. So that was complete as well. So now we're into the pre-trial starting in Liverpool, Nova Scotia on October 21st, and that will involve seven men's and seven women's teams with a top two from each gender advancing to the trials in Saskatoon November 20th to 28th to join those seven teams I already mentioned. And, of course, the trials will be a nine-team round robin for both genders, followed by a three-team sudden-death playoff. Two will play three, and the winner will play one. 
and the winner goes to Beijing. Now, my thoughts on this whole thing, I'm really interested to hear Kevin's take. After a normal three years leading to the Olympics, there would be more than four to six teams that should probably be considered to be Canada's best and those that should probably represent the country in the Olympics. I'm in the opinion that after a three-year segment, we should pretty much know who the, who the teams are that are possibly the ones that should go to the Olympics. The pre-trials I've never really been a fan of because you're running an event where there's a, a number of teams that I keep hearing need to get some experience, but maybe the experience would be better accomplished if there was an event maybe held in the East and one in the West where these teams were able to play in a kind of a tier two competition. And maybe if a camp was held around each one of those events where there was maybe a two, three day uh, opportunity for these teams to maybe be evaluated, maybe to learn more and maybe to better prepare them for potentially being Olympic teams going forward. So I'm not a big fan of the pre-trials. I'm interested to hear what Kevin's thought is on this whole process. Boy, it's so uncomplicated, Kev. (laughs) (laughs) Holy man, oh man. (laughs) Yeah, Warren lost me about halfway through. I was watching some streaming the other day, and I was watching a game. I'm not going to say who was playing, but I was watching a game. It was a good game. And at the end, the announcer said, uh, so with that win... Team A has earned the right to go to Liverpool to the pre-trials. I go, what? I thought I was watching something that got you to the trials. I'm going, so I got to figure it out. What do you mean go to Liverpool? So they had to win an event to go to an event in hopes to go to an event. And if you do good there, you might go to another event called the Olympics. To me, this makes no sense at all. We as Canadians, we really want teams that can make it to the podium. And I know we get emails, and I'm sure we're going to when I say what I'm going to say here. And that's, you know, they should have a chance. And if they come up with a big week, they deserve to go. Well, I guess. But the problem is they were allowed in there in the first place because we don't want a one-hit wonder. We don't want somebody at the trials playing the best week of their life the first time and then going to the Olympics and going back to normal again and coming in ninth. We don't want that. You know, or at least I don't think we do. To me, there's maybe four or five teams on the men's, women's sides. Let's expand it to maybe six that have a legitimate right after three, four years of consistent play. One of these teams should be our representative, and then we all back that team to the nth and cheer for them like crazy, try to get them on the podium. But that's sort of the way I look at it. I, I just don't see where the 12th or 14th ranked team in Canada, I don't agree. I, I don't think they should be in the trials. I, I really don't because they might win. And that could be an absolute disaster because funding for our sport comes from winning. It doesn't, there's no participation medal here. You've got to get on that podium. And that's really, really important. I know it's fairly strong feelings, but that's the way I look at it. Interesting enough, our first email in our uh, mailbag segment uh, is all about the Olympic trials, Warren. And uh, we're going to talk about that. The Inside Curling Mailbag is brought to you by Boost. Up your nutrition game with Boost. Convenient meal replacement drinks with a taste you're guaranteed to love. Warren, you put out an article on our Facebook group a couple of weeks back that questioned why do we need a pre-trials and all of the playoffs currently being held to select the uh, Olympic team. You suggested, and I think everyone does now, uh, that the process should be less complicated and only involve the teams that can win. We had a guy weigh in on this, and here's part of his email. Uh, it's from Felix. I agree the system for this year is very complicated, twisted, and requires a good knowledge of the curling world and general to be followed. Let's give Curling Canada a break as COVID was impossible to predict. Also, teams in the pre-pre-trials 
are required to pay all their expenses. Let them pay if they want to play. Why do you seem so scared that a team goes and wins the pre-trials to join the big teams at the trials? If they do, it's because they played exceptionally well. Congrats to them. If they then win the trials, on top of it, they will have shown us without a doubt that they are great reps. Why be scared of that? Finally, for the normal trial process, pre-trials plus trials, being flawed or not, I have a much, much shorter answer. 2005 Brad Gushu and Brad Jacobs, 2013. Felix Mr. Jacobs came through the pre-trials in 2013. There's a lot there, Warren. Uh, what do you say to all this? I'm of Kevin's opinion. I think, again, teams that are coming up through the ranks need to have a process that they can do so. But again, to have a team get hot for one week and be able to represent Canada at the Olympics, I don't think is the way this whole thing is designed. It's certainly not the way on the podium, the Canadian Olympic Committee and Sport Canada look at the whole situation and their funding that goes towards this. So, I mean, I don't totally agree with Felix. I believe you have to earn your way up through the ranks and, uh, when you get to that point that you're one of the best, then you have an opportunity to compete for that right. Uh, he mentions Gushu in 2005 and again Jacobs in 2013. Jacobs was a strange one because he had won the Briar the year before. And so he had already pretty much made his mark in the curling world. Interesting enough, I look at things too. 2005 and 2013 are different times than they are now. Things have changed quite a bit in the last probably six, seven years. And the fact that the top teams whoever they are, the five, six, or seven of them that are, are going to be the best uh, that we have in Canada, I think are so much stronger than the balance that it's going to be very hard for anybody to to knock all of them off. And uh, I'm not sure what the purpose it all serves. And, and we're just putting these top teams through another process. While they may win most of those games, they're going to be hard-fought battles, and you're beating them up before they actually uh, have to go and represent the country. So I'm not sure if that's so good either. Well, I love the Olympic trials. I think it's a terrific event that carries so much weight in Canadian sport. So I think the trials is very, very important. Um, if we want to go back to 2013, there's actually three teams in that trials. It was a strong year. Brad Gushu, John Morris, and Brad Jacobs. All very, very good. And our team, uh, John Morris had left the team earlier that year. And uh, so we wanted to pick up whichever team, because only two teams could come to the trials. And I had talked to Brad Gushu, John Morris, and Brad Jacobs, and whichever team would end up losing, that skip was going to be our fifth. So uh, that was a strong group of teams. So to have uh, you know the teams that come out of there being strong at the trials, no surprise that year. Very unique situation, actually. But to me, though, I can't imagine why you need to take it past six teams in the Olympic trials. Six men, six women, battle it out, winner goes, guaranteeing a very, very strong rep. One thing about it, though, um, we've been very fortunate in Canada that we have had really strong reps all the way along so far with this process. And that's what scares me about going pre-pre-trials, pre, you know, just going way back and way up the, uh, the rankings. One thing about it, our top four or five women's and men's teams are incredibly good. So it would be very difficult for somebody to come out of the 10 to 20 rankings and have any opportunity to win. Coming up, we're going to talk to Graham Prowse, the vice president of the WCF. I'm sure he'll have something to say about this, uh, as well as a number of other topics. Good stuff. Next, Graham Prowse from the WCF.
in the house is brought to you by Goldline Curling, a market leader in curling equipment. Goldline has been creating and selling innovative new curling equipment since the year I was born, 1967. That's a lie. I'm older than that. (laughs) Uh, And they can be found in curling clubs all over the world, whether you're just stepping on the ice for the first time, which I haven't done yet. Hopefully it'll happen this year. Or competing for a gold medal, Goldline equipment can be found at all levels of play. And our first guest of the season, there he is, Graham Prouse, the vice president of the WCF. I love all these guys, Kevin and Warren, that you get as guests because they got great business cards. The vice president of the World Curling Federation. What's the vice president of the WCF do? Well, there's actually, Jim, there's actually three of us. Uh, I'm the vice president of the Americas. Uh, my colleague, Bent Ramsfell, is uh, vice president of Europe and... Uh, Hugh Milliken is Vice President of uh, Pacific Asia, and so we have a number of duties that are assigned to us um, over the course of our terms, and uh, some of them are to do with holding meetings and and, uh, representing the zone from which we come. Some of them are to do uh, with more uh, specific assignments. So as an example, one of my assignments is uh, broadcast and, and streaming. Uh, and then it's just kind of general board work outside of that, in addition to uh, some different committees and commissions that we sit on. Warren, what do, you, what do you got for Graham? Well, Graham and I have known each other for a number of years. Graham was a provincial president serving uh, for Alberta for, uh, I believe, a term back in the around 2003, 2004. And from there, he became elected to the Curling Canada board when I was working with Curling Canada. So I worked with him there for a number of years. He was actually chairman of the board when the Olympics were in Vancouver in 2010. And from there, Graham moved over to the World Curling Federation, and he's been uh, in that role, I guess, Graham, now for 10 years. Is that be correct? Uh, 11, actually. It's been a long time. So we know each other well. Uh, Graham is one of the people that I've got a lot of regard for in the sport. He looks forward. He looks ahead. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's got good vision. So we've got a number of things to discuss with Graham. The WCF introduced three trial changes to the rules at the 2022 World Men's and Women's Championships. This is a one-year trial emphasis. If the membership agrees, the rules will be passed for future use, probably in September of 2022. So let's wait in there and uh, have Kevin step up and uh, introduce the first rule change and discuss uh, with Graham what you think about it. Graham, great to talk to you. And uh, yes, as as Warren has known you for a long time, uh, we have as well, but we actually met more on the curling side of things. And uh, I'm just wondering, do you still have the steel slider that you use you were kind of one of the first guys that i played against that had the steel sliders so that uh, you get out to the hog line exactly i needed it <laughs> I, I needed all the help i could get to uh to, to throw the rock as hard as i could okay let's get into the thinking time per end because that's a that was a huge change that i think was very positive and i guess you know going back over the years when the old-fashioned score system was in and then the grand slams started the thinking time and it worked out pretty well and thinking time for the whole game be it 33 35 minutes well now a big change is per end so the teams can't kind of pad their time for the last couple of ends i think that's probably the main reason is that you know teams would pad the time and then be able to take you know 15 20 25 minutes for the last uh, at least end or two ends so it's four minutes per end for the first half of the game and then four minutes 15 seconds for the last few ends of the game. And I'd like to get your thoughts on it, Graham, but but I certainly like it because uh, it's more of a consistent flow, in my opinion. Seventh, eighth, or the ninth and tenth ends, depending on it's an eight-end or ten-end game, tend to go a little bit faster. And, you know, the 
The big curling fans, the ones that'll never miss a game, of course, it doesn't matter how long the ends are, they're just glad to watch, but the the shoulder viewers, the ones that, you know, pop in, pop out, you end up with a 15, 20, 25 minute last end. Boy, it's tough to uh, to keep them viewing. So, Graham, thoughts on the four minute and four minute, 15 second ends? Well, a couple of things, Kevin, if I could, just to give a little background. Uh, you were in Pyeongchang, and first event out of the gate there for us was uh, the first time mixed doubles was in the Olympics. So we, we watched a week of that. Uh, it was fantastic. It was quick-paced. And I can remember the very first draw of team curling. We were in the second end, and we're saying, is this ever going to end? The difference in the pace between the mixed doubles and uh, team curling was so significant and so obvious at that point. So it is, a for us, uh, for sure, it's a pace of play issue. It's about a couple of things regarding pace of play, uh, attracting newer and younger audiences, uh, you know, being brisk, having a brisk pace of play, keeping it interesting. And also it's about retaining the existing audiences during those defensive blank ends that you were talking about so that you could bank time for those uh, longer ends at the end of uh, towards the end of the game. You mentioned as well the differential between the long and the short time in an end. We did a bunch of analysis on uh, games at the World Championships from since we instituted the five rock free guard zone rule. And we found that uh, when comparing those ends with the curling World Cup, that was played under thinking time per end. And when we compared the differential between the long and the short ends, it was significant. So in a thinking time per game situation, the differential is uh, between four and a half and six and a half minutes. In thinking time per end, which we played in the Curling World Cup, the differential is between three and four and a half minutes for between the short and the long ends. That's a huge difference. That translates to you know up to 15 plus minutes during the course of game. So that data and the, the two things about the defensive blank end and the uh, dragging it out at the end um, at the end of a game where really you know what kind of drove this it all we also think it will help encourage offensive play because there really isn't any benefit to banking any time so you might want to play a, uh, an open end for strategic regions which is fine uh, but you know we don't want to take away any of the strategic part of it but you know this rule uh, we believe would eliminate those quick ends where, where it's kind of a intentional blank in order to save time you know to have a 20 minute end at the end of the game you obviously consulted the athletes on this particular issue. What was the feeling overall from them? I'm glad you brought that up, Warren, because we have uh, a number of athletes that were uh, part of the group that came up with these uh, concepts for the trial rules. It was a group that was formed uh, coming out of the 2019 annual assembly. Uh, it's called the Maximizing the Value Group. And uh, we included on that group a number of uh, a couple of athletes from the WCF Athlete Commission. We also had uh, representatives from member associations that are or were uh, former athletes. The other vice presidents, uh, Hugh and Bent, are uh, both uh, uh, Olympians, Olympic champion, actually, uh, in Bent's case. So we had them to consult. They, they've also had surveys that have been done in 2015 and 2019 by the WCF Athlete Commission that question the athlete pool about these sort of things. And then in addition, we had the, as I mentioned earlier, that we had the thinking time per end in the Curling World Cup. And, and there was surveying done at the end of that from the participants. And although there's, uh, I've seen some negative stuff out there about thinking time per end, the, the overall feedback that we've gotten uh, over time has been it's you know either positive or it's or or neutral and that it's worth a try okay let's get at the second one the no tick shot rule which again is a very interesting one and the way it reads if a stone is touching the center line within the free guard zone 
It may not be removed off the center line by an opponent's stone until after the fifth stone of the end has been played. Hopefully that's going to create more offense, more aggressive play, particularly in the last end of the game. You want to tell us a bit about that one? Sure, that, that, you're right. That's uh, definitely has got... Um Part of it is about encouraging offense, and you know, the longer that uh, you have guards that are in front of the uh, the main scoring area, in front of the forefoot, the higher likelihood that you're going to have an offensive end. It doesn't take away the ability to blank an end, as we know these guys are so good these days that uh, they can end up, you know, with eight rocks and play after the leads and second are done and through a number of doubles and triples and so on that uh, that they get the blank uh, that they might have been looking for. Nothing wrong with those kind of ends. It's those open-ended blank ends that are an issue. We also conducted a survey during the World Men's this past year in the in the bubble, and blank ends actually were something that came out as uh, significantly negative for during that fan survey, which was over 6,000 people from 55 countries. Offense is part of it for sure. It's also about the comeback potential. When we did an analysis of the uh, world men's, women's, juniors, uh, et cetera, from 2017 onward, we looked at the comeback potential and the ability to come back after, you know, even being tied after with two ends to go without the hammer or being, uh, you know, one or two down with the hammer. And the comeback potential is, is not great. The, you know, again, the skill level is so good that the conditions are so good that um, it becomes really difficult to come back. And, and while you might argue that it's been a team that's been successful in getting ahead to that point of the game, if we're looking at retaining an audience, uh, they got to believe that there's an opportunity um, for somebody to come back or that the game is in some doubt. And then finally, it's got a lot to do with uh, win predictability. So during our analysis of, of those events from 2017 onwards, and, and in the case of the men's and the women's we included this year, what we found was that in an extra end, if you have the hammer, you win over 80% of the games. And in the case of the, of the men, it's over 85 that becomes a problem when wins are very predictable. You'll, you know, we, we see it as an issue uh, and potentially people turning away if it seems obvious who's going to win. So we think the tick shot will positively impact that. Graham, quickly before uh, Kevin comes in again, you know, you just mentioned you had surveyed 6,000 people. Is that generally how the WCF goes about uh, rule changes, for example, when, the, when they say, okay, we've got to look at this. How do we decide if a change needs to happen or not? Jim, more and more we're doing that. And I think it came from our, uh, we learned a lot in 2015-16 during the sweeping summit and the the issues with the brooms. And one of the biggest wins there, I think, was uh, when we were able to successfully navigate that issue was that we used and engaged um, the players. And we consulted and we we did uh, a lot of work to make sure that we brought everybody along with us. We did the same thing with our member associations. We surveyed them. We, you know, we kept them abreast of what's going on. And just to clarify one thing about these trial rules, they are currently proposed. And the final decision hasn't been taken because we're currently in the consultation phase. And this is part of it. Me coming on here and talking about these is part of the consultation that we're doing. Under the constitution of the WCF, it's the member associations that make the final decisions on the rules. And we felt in this instance, with these three rules in particular, we hadn't had a chance to properly consult on them when we got to our annual assembly early September. So what we did is we asked the membership if they would allow further consultation to take place and then and then let the board make the final decision. So the member associations put their trust in 
the fact that the board would undertake the consultation, that we would listen to it, that we would take into account what we hear. And then in the case of these three rules, uh, they would allow the board to make the ultimate um, decision. So I think that that's a long answer to a short question, but I think, um, you know, we're, we're sure trying where we, we see the value in, um, in consulting, especially with the elite players and with our fans, because curling is a sports property. It's not just a competition uh, curling at the elite level. And so if, if we want to grow the game, if we want to have more bigger audience and a younger audience, you know, we've got to listen to them. The first two, Graham, to be honest, I've talked to a lot of curlers about the thinking time per end and the tick shot, and there's not a lot of opposition to it at all that I can see. It just makes a ton of sense, but uh, boy, is it a, a bee's nest when uh, when you start to look at the no extra ends uh, for round robin play. I get everything from it's about time to this is the craziest thing I've ever heard of, but from a sports point of view, it makes a lot of sense to me. The reason is, is that when you have two points for a win, zero for a loss, no matter what, and you don't want tiebreakers, we have a problem because there's going to be a lot of tiebreakers in that situation. So then you're going to break ties by a draw to the button, period. Okay, but wouldn't it be more fun for the viewers and probably even the curlers if it's not automatically two for a win, zero for a loss, but you can actually have outright wins in the round robin or you have a draw to the button after the game's done, kind of like the skins game for all those years. Now it was always high stress, high pressure, high drama. And then you get two points for the shootout win, one for the shootout loss. And then of course, if you're a straight loss, zero with four different ways of getting points or four different values, I see a great advantage to that in cutting down on the tiebreaker possibilities when you know the WCF have certainly said that they don't really like the idea of having tiebreaker games. Uh, after round robin play. Well, that kind of makes sense to me. I do understand, you know, Brad Gushu, his concern, of course, um, and he's been quite outspoken about it, and that's changing the strategy near the end of the games. But it may just involve a new strategy, depending on where you are in the field. You may only need one point, two points, or three points to be able to go to the next level to make the playoffs. It could bring some other strategies into the game that haven't been there before. Thoughts, Graham? Because uh, this is a big move. This this one has really caused uh, some turbulence. It has, and it's not unexpected, Kevin. We we expected to get some pushback on all of these rules to different degrees. And one thing that we, I think, the way that we set up the process where we included uh, representatives from the WCF Athlete Commission and, and other athletes that were on within the group, I think it was, was really good because we haven't heard anything uh, any of the pushback we've heard, we heard it internally. So we, you know, we encouraged the people that were sitting in this group to think outside the box and to take into account other aspects that they might not have otherwise. That's positive. And, and I think to what your point, uh, what you've said is um, bang on. I think we're really interested to see what those uh, diverging strategies might be as you get near the end of a game and you need to get capture all three points or you need to capture only two or only one. And it's hard to know what those would be without seeing them. They got to be played. So we know it's a quite a departure from the traditional uh, extra end. But again, I'll go back to the 85% uh, likelihood to win if you have the hammer in the extra end. It's almost a foregone conclusion. The other thing is in terms of making of growing the game and spreading it as broadly as possible 
the game length management for us is a big deal. It's about being able to ensure that a game fits inside a particular broadcast window. So if we go to a new broadcaster, especially a broadcaster from a territory for where curling isn't a traditional sport, and we say, well, you know what, the game might be two hours long, but it also might be three and a half. That doesn't work. So so being able to manage the game length is a big part of this as well. And I think the other part of it is that uh, when you look at other sports, they're all doing things, especially in the regular season, to manage the length of time and to manage the, the amount of time that they're asking their fans to invest in the game. So I think of baseball in the last couple of years where they start with a runner on second base in an extra inning in the regular season. Canadian football is a number of years ago changed to their current tie-breaking system. Uh, where, you know, each team has the ball potentially twice unless somebody gets a touchdown. And, you know, those sort of things are taking place in, in other sports. And I think, although it's a departure, we've seen the draw to the button be a pretty exciting thing in the Kerning World Cup and in a number of other events where, where that's been used. So although it's not necessarily the favorite of um, teams, it does bring some added value to the viewer. Anyway, we think it's worth a try as well. We actually looked at at not breaking the tie. So we we actually had a look at saying, you know, it's maybe we just leave it as a tie and everybody gets one point. One of the things that came through loud and clear in our fan survey was they that they liked the best about curling is that there's always a winner. So I think this fits. Yeah, I think the key thing here as well, Graham, you and I were both in a meeting a couple of years ago with NBC in New York, and that question was put on the table is to looking forward, what is going to be the optimal time for any competition on television or streaming? And it was a very quick reply, two to two and a half hours maximum. And I think all sports are going to have to get their head around this moving forward. Uh, there's going to have to become a new way of probably inserting commercial messages into all these broadcasts and a whole different approach. And I think the other thing with curling, this issue of 10 ends versus eight, maybe this is going to be the final moving factor that moves uh, things at your level from the 10 to the 8 end game because uh, without question with a 10 end game you cannot fit that barely into two and a half hours if you took out all the breaks never mind that uh, start talking about extra ends so I think it's something that's going to have to happen in some way shape or form. Uh, you know that really the uh, 8 versus 10 end debate was the genesis of this project with the maximizing the value group was it came from uh Again, I mentioned earlier the 2019 annual assembly in uh, in Cancun. We had a, a proposal on the table to take championship play from 10 ends to 8 ends, but it was uh, felt by the WCA board and the member associations agreed that we needed we needed more information about the impacts of reducing the number of ends. So this was the process that we uh, that we undertook because there are there are significant impacts financially in terms of the broadcast reach and opportunity, audience impressions competitive integrity, event operation, and, and then the overall fan and spectator engagement. Uh, there's impacts to that. So part of this process is to, you know, the, these three rule changes, as an example, are we think they're important whether we play eight ends or 10 ends, so that we need to f- determine whether or not these are uh, these would enhance the product. And then once we know whether these type of things do enhance the product, I think then we can have a, a more meaningful discussion about eight versus 10. There was uh, a number of surveys done by the uh, Athlete Commission, uh, one in 2015, another one in uh, 2019. And the athletes in that responded to those surveys uh, were pretty much split on eight versus 10. 
And I would say, if looking around the room at the uh, member associations of the WCF, I think there's a split there as well. I, I honestly don't know whether one side is leading more towards eight or 10. I don't know that because we've never asked never asked a question, but uh, we know it's something that we're going to have to deal with. And I, in fact, I think it uh, it's highly likely that the motion that was suspended uh, two years ago will be back on the table next AGA. Yeah, I think it's time we've got to get real with this thing. I mean, I can go back through time. The Briar uh, was 14 ends when it started in 1927. And then the Briar was 12 ends up until 1976. And that was another huge argument. Everything was 10 ends except the Briar. And it bowled its way through, continued at 12, until finally, in the 1976 Briar, a game went five hours, and the afternoon draw had to be laid by two hours. And so finally, everybody got the message of, yeah, we got to go to 10 ends, because that was before time clocks. But it's the same issue now. Uh, you've got a 10-end game goes an extra end. It's not only an issue from a broadcast point of view, but you're pressuring the next draw coming on the ice, the ice technicians, everybody else in preparation. Um, it's causing all kinds of issues. And I think right now we're sitting with the World Curling Federation, Canadian Curling Association, where the only places in the world really still using 10-end games. Everything else has gone to eight. And so I think it's it's somehow it's got to happen. What do you think, Kevin? Well, I, I certainly think that uh, the young viewers are not going to sit for three and a half hours and watch a game. Sylvana Terenzoni said that well when we... Uh, when we were talking about baseball, huge baseball fans, she says, Kevin, I can't take that much time to watch anymore. So unfortunately, I don't watch baseball anymore. Well, you know, that's a serious thing. If you're a big fan of something, but it just takes too long, so you don't bother, that's the wrong answer. Let's just get it a little quicker. And uh, so we invite more of the young viewers in, the Gen Zers, who, uh, you know, stats say that they won't watch things over two, two and a half hours. They just don't. Okay, that's okay. Well, let's make sure our curling games end that quick so that we invite in the the viewership it makes automatic sense to me but you know obviously we've got to go through you know i I do like this idea though graham to to test this three two one zero idea i think it makes a lot of sense because it'll cut down on the tiebreakers it could be really really important going forward yeah, it's, it really, when you look at this thing, if, again, if you think of it from the aspect of a sports entertainment property, it's really important that we, whatever the, whatever broadcast window or whatever window we, we established is, as ideal for the amount of time a game should take. We need to do our best to fill it. And so that's not just on not going over it, but that's actually to fill it. So, you know, the, I, th- I think these, these rules, these trial rules have a, uh, have an opportunity to allow us to, to see that to see it in action because to date a lot of this stuff has just been about um, you know, we're, we're surmising what the impacts might be, but we, we really uh, this will allow us to actually see it. And again, back to the eight V 10 debate, you know, some of these rules like the, the no tick shot rule have been played in the eight end environment only at the end of end of a game or, you know, near the end of the game, seeing it played through throughout the entire game will give us some, um, data some indication as to uh you know what the impacts were the thinking time per end will do the same so again we're trying to fill whatever whatever broadcast window we can we have we we want to try and fill it and and maybe just to provide a little more background at, at the risk of going long here sorry i think in canada especially we're we're conditioned to the curling product that we see on television from uh sportsnet and from tsn both of those broadcasters have multiple platforms. So if a game goes long, it's not such a big deal. 
to uh, put the next schedule program onto a different channel or to juggle things around. It's doable. When we look at the broadcast um, partners that we have around the world, we have sports networks that are multiple platform. We also have sport network partners that are single platform. We have public broadcasters and we have national broadcasters. And in the, with the national broadcasters, especially, you know, we've run into issues around the world where, where a game has gone long, even if the team of the national broadcaster is playing in, in it, even in the final, where the game gets cut off and they go to the 11 o'clock news because that was the previously scheduled program and we ran long. Um, so it's really about managing this to get it nice and tight so that it's appealing to broadcasters around the world. And the benefit for curling is that we see curling continue to grow and develop around the world. Yeah, I guess that's the idea that uh, us in Canada have to get through our heads is there's more to the curling world today than Canada. And uh, I think that's good points that you make that there's, I think 67 nations are now members of the World Curling Federation and more and more of them are getting involved in taking television feeds and streaming feeds. And this is all a very important item for all of them. But it is in Canada here as well. I think if we want to move things forward, we have to move with the times. Let's uh, move on to another topic that uh, was brought up in your meetings in September. That's another very interesting one. I didn't have any idea it was coming. And that is the fact that the playoff system is going to change in 2022. Uh, just to review the way things are right now as to how teams qualify for the world men's and women's, the European Championship brings through eight teams. Three teams are brought through from the Pacific Asia Championship, and the Americas get two positions which usually has been Canada, but interesting enough, this year coming up, uh, United States is the host of the men's world, so Canada is going to have to go into a playoff with Brazil and Mexico. But that'll be the last time that type of thing will be happening. So, Graham, do you want to tell us exactly how things are going to proceed going forward with regard to how teams qualify for the men's and women's worlds? Sure. This is um, the outcome, Warren, of a, of a lot of work um, of the Competition and Rules Commission, which is uh, chaired by uh, my colleague, Hugh Milliken. I also sit on that commission, and, and it's been many years coming. And basically, the issues that we're trying to deal with is, one, we're trying to ensure that there's a way that the developing teams can see a path, a more a more legitimate path to find their way to, as they get better and better, to the world championship. So we have a good system in Europe with the European A, B, and C system where teams go up, teams go down as their, uh, you know, as their play improves or, you know, as they suffer some setbacks in terms of their, of, of their ability. And what will happen with this new championship is we'll combine the America's Challenge and the Pacific Asia Curling Championship into one event. Uh, so instead of there being, as you mentioned this year, there's, a, I think there's going to be a three-team playoff in the Americas for a spot, one of the two spots of the Americas in the world. And that's typically, uh, if, it, if it's only one or two teams, it's a, it's a short round robin. And uh, to their uh, credit, the teams like Brazil and Mexico and Guyana have, I mean, they're working hard to try and build their ability and build and, and bring uh, players up that can compete, but they've struggled to do that against the U.S. and Canada. So what we're going to do is we're going to mirror what's gone on in Europe and we're going to create, a, we've created the Pan-Continental Curling Championship. It'll combine those two previous competitions and uh, there will be an A and a B. And uh, from that event, uh, five teams uh, will come through and, and uh, compete at the Worlds. In the European Championship, seven teams will come through 
and uh, there'll be a, there will we'll keep with the thirteenth team at this point. And what will happen is uh, at next year's World Champ, uh, sorry, the year after this, so the first time that the Pan Continental Championship gets held will be in twenty twenty three. So what will happen is the top five teams, either from Europe or from the new Pan Continental uh, Championship, the top five teams will be compared. Their records will be compared at the Worlds, and the following year, uh, whichever of the, uh, the combined records is better, that zone or that championship will get an extra spot. So if Europe finishes um, with five teams uh, higher than the top five teams from the Pan Continental, then the next year they'll have eight teams go to the Worlds. So it's kind of it's kind of we we refer to it as our safety valve, and basically we're hoping that it kind of is indicative of you know as as the strength of both championships goes up and down, that we'll be able to use that as a bit of a gauge to determine who gets the extra spot. Is this over now? The guys who win the Briar and the women who win the Scotties are not whistled right into the World Championship? That's correct. So after this year, they will have to go and compete at the uh, at the Pan Continental Curling Championship for one of the five spots. Well, it's interesting. This whole thing was sculptured the way it is going back to 1992 when curling was trying to become an Olympic medal sport and it was only being really played on two continents. So a third continent had to be brought into play. And that's how this whole current system was created. But that's back when the entire number of countries in the world was 25 and not 67. Um, I guess a couple of things, Graham. So this is going to be interesting for Canada and the USA. I'm assuming this playoff will probably be held in November, I would think. The location at this point, I guess, is unknown. But I guess I go back to the same question you and I have discussed many times. And I know how other sports deal with this issue. And I'm also looking at the development of these countries that are number 65 and 66 and 67. And that is being a pooling or tiered system where you probably have 10, 12 teams in each pool and uh, teams start to go up and teams start to go down. And I look at that as the long-term approach to life as to how these lower-level countries are going to ever develop and have a chance. Because under this current system, yes, it's been modified somewhat and it's better now for Asia than it has been, um, maybe for South America to develop something. But for the overall world, I'm not sure if this is where things should be going in the future. What, what are your thoughts? Uh, so I think what you're talking about, Warren, is kind of a, a tiered system for the entire world instead of just within the Europeans or the PCCC. We looked at that. You know, for us, it's a big world. We've got countries all around the world. The difference in resources for those uh, newer or emerging uh, countries is significantly different than the established uh, countries. So what this does is even though the Pacific, uh, when we combine the Pacific Asia and, and the Americas, that's still a big travel zone. It's still not as, not the same as, you know, taking in, into account the whole world. But I think probably the bigger thing is we've got a very successful event in the Europeans. So the European Championship is a long-standing event, very successful. It's a very strong uh, marketing and sponsorship revenue for us. It's a great broadcast product. It does well, um, not only in Europe, but we actually, in the last few years, have started to be able to distribute it around the world. So we're kind of taking the European Championship model and applying it to the new Pan Continental Championship. And what we'll do there, as I mentioned earlier, there's an A and a B there will be an A and a B division in that. So teams, as they're developing, can work their way from the B to the A. And as we get more and more countries that join the WCF, if they're outside of Europe, they'll be added to the Pan Continental Championship. So we, we look at uh, the high likelihood that the, the numbers are going to grow in there. And, and I think from a development standpoint, 
the ability for those countries that are kind of on the trying to move from uh, being a brand new curling nation to move up the ranks, you know, this will assist in it. It's not the three or four tiers or five tiers that it might be if it was the entire world, but we think it's a start to that. And then really the other part of it is taking from the existing European championship. That's a very sponsorable product. It's done well for us. And we think the pan continental will be as well. That's going to be, you know, an attractive broadcast and marketing property with Korea, China, Japan as the traditional uh, stronghold countries out of the Pacific Asia. And of course, uh, the United States and Canada. Graham, thanks a lot for doing this. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, thanks again, Graham. Great. I really appreciate the opportunity and it's, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, again, if we have any, anybody's got any questions at all, be happy to uh, have you address them to the uh, World Curling Federation. We have email address on our website. Well, there you go, fellas. Uh, what'd you think of all that stuff, Warren? Oh, it's uh, very interesting to say the least without question, but uh, we'll see where it goes. Kev, what do you think the biggest thing is? That they got to work on. I'm not WCF. sure about got to work on. I think it's great that they they're starting to evolve and uh, and understanding the game is going to continue to change. I was I wanted to ask Graham, but we'll do it next time. With uh, I know there's 67 countries in the in the world right now, but I think I hear a rumor there's 15 to 20 more countries trying to get in. So you're you know you're talking 80 to 90 countries. So uh, yeah, it's just it's evolving. It's going to have to continue to evolve. But the pan continental makes a lot of sense in my world. Well, boys, that's a wrap. Uh, Lots of stuff there. Uh, Warren, do you think we'll get any response on the Olympic trials format? (laughs) Someone's got to figure that out uh, because Kevin and I are completely confused. Inside Curling is reaching out to curling clubs all over the world and inviting you to contact us and ask to set up a one-hour Zoom call with uh, myself, Kevin, and Warren to discuss anything you like. We've done a bunch of these, and uh, people love them. Uh, Please keep in mind we're doing it on a limited basis to see how it goes, and if there's something Inside Curling should consider to offer going forward. Get in touch, even if you're a curling group or league. Uh, Kev, before we go, upcoming events, do tell us what's going on. Yeah, well, a huge event. The new floors in Penticton is probably the best field uh, that you'll get outside of the Grand Slam events. Uh, It'll be on curling.com, so that's huge. Also, of course, coming up, the first Grand Slam of the year, the Masters, uh, the women's and men's, and... You know what? Uh, on the women's side, 16 teams, only five Canadian teams in the event. Amazing. And then on the men's side, out of the 16 teams, eight Canadian teams, half the field. So really interesting stuff. Really looking forward to getting back on the air on Sportsnet. So really looking forward to it. Fantastic, uh, fellas. Go back to doing what you're doing. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. The podcast is produced by Warren Hansen and Jonathan Brazo. Uh, mixed and sound designed by Andrew Holland. And hosted by Kevin Martin and Warren Hanson, of course. And me, Jimmy Jerome. Additional editing support by Amal Delix. And Amal's about one year into a new father. So he hasn't slept in in a year. (laughs) We want to extend a big thank you to Rod Paulson and his company, In-House Strategies, for all the great work on our Facebook page and our Facebook group. We'll be back again next week, fellas, and for many, many weeks in a row. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Take it easy. You've been listening to Inside Brewing.